You're listening to the Carterville Church Life Podcast. I love our church family, and I hope that you do too. Our goal is that the episodes of this podcast would keep us connected and focused while we're scattered for our week on missions together. I hope that you're blessed by what you hear today. Hey, church family and friends. I am so glad that you've gathered again for this special series of podcast episodes on apologetics. We are engaging some of the big questions of the worldview of our culture, uh, some questions that I believe as Christians we would love to have good answers for as we engage our mission field this week. So many of us are returning to our college campuses or to the high school classrooms, and I know that our friends who surround us have some of these questions. So to get good answers to big questions, I've traveled to New Orleans, and I am with a friend of mine, Dr. Bob Stewart, who is a professor of theology, apologetics, and philosophy at New Orleans Baptist Seminary, my alma mater. And he is graciously answering some of these big questions for us. So today's question, Doc, is a heavy one. Uh, To be honest with you, this is one that I think everybody encounters at some point from friends who have objections to Christianity. And honestly, a lot of believers, when they set out to read their Bible, they march through the Old Testament, and by the time at least that they get to the book of Joshua, they start to raise this big question. So today's question is, how can I trust a God who commanded genocide? So if you're not super familiar with your Old Testament, there are a couple of examples in the Bible where God told a spiritual leader like Joshua or Saul to deploy the army and eradicate a people. And so this for us sounds like genocide, but maybe there's more to the story. So Doc, how can we trust a God who commands genocide? Okay, that's that's a great question, a timely question. Um, this is a complex question, and it's frequently asked by rabid atheists because they understand that you can ask a complex question in just a little bit of time, but you can't answer a complex question in a little bit of time, like in a podcast. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, but, this 10 minutes may not be enough. <laughs> you may have to direct us to secondary sources, but thanks for taking us down. So... Uh, Uh, Complex questions typically have different sorts of issues. Uh, This particular question has historical issues. What actually happened? Uh, Interpretive issues. What does the Bible mean when it says these sorts of things? Logical issues. Is this coherent? Uh, Is it consistent rationally? Uh, Theological issues. How should we think about this sort of God? But of primary importance is the existential issue. Can I trust a God like that? And, and existential issues are really where the rubber hits the road in uh, decision-making, in relationships, and uh, so forth, and frequently in apologetics. Uh, one thing I would say right off the bat is that these passages, that uh, there are a few of them in the Old Testament in particular, they're not a good argument for atheism. Okay, Now, the, I'm not saying that there aren't serious philosophical arguments for atheists, um, just that these texts don't supply any. They might be uh, a reason to reject Christianity, but they wouldn't be a good reason to reject God's existence. Uh, they, they might be a better reason to, to reject uh, the reliability of the Old Testament, but that wouldn't 
make them good reasons to reject Christianity in in toto. And um, I'll and, I, and I'll say, and for the record, I know you well. I know that you don't reject the Old Testament or God, so you navigate this question well. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I I I accept the inerrancy, inspiration, infallibility of the entire Bible. But existential questions are questions of trust. Uh, to whom shall I commit myself? Uh, can I trust this sort of person? It, it's the sort of question that you ask uh, when uh, getting ready to propose to a young lady or that a young lady asks when being proposed to by a young man. Uh, do I, am I willing to give my life to this Person. So the fundamental question is, can I trust a God if I fear that he might be the sort of person that I could not love? And, um, and so uh, I want to give you a few pointers as, as to ways to navigate it. And then at the end, I will give you some, some sources that you could, could use to dive deeper into this. Number one is I want to say that a strong case can be made that most of these passages are not saying what we think they're saying. Uh, not all of them. This is, this is not a way around all of them, but many of them are examples of, of ancient Near Eastern warfare rhetoric and uh, exaggeration and hyperbole. And a number of ancient Near Eastern scholars have, have pointed this out, some of them not even being religious people. Uh, showing that this sort of grandiose talk is sort of like in Little League. Uh, after my team would win uh, in baseball, we always would do this chant, two, four, six, eight, who did we annihilate? Uh, well, we didn't mean uh, that we wiped them utterly out of existence and their dead carcasses were laying out <laughs> on the field. Uh, we just meant we won the game. Sure. And, and so we find that this kind of wipe them out entirely language in the Egyptian literature, in the Hittite literature, in the Moabite literature, in the Assyrian literature, uh, this sort of thing. Now, this is not to say that, um, that these people were lying, that the biblical authors are lying, but they're just talking like people of their day would talk. They're writing to individuals of their time. We say something like it was from here to Timbuktu. We don't literally mean it was from here to Africa. Uh, it's just a long way. So then the question is, do we have evidence in the Old Testament of this sort of thing? And, and the answer is yes, we do. Uh, for instance, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1 and the first part of verse 2 says this, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, lots of ites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. Well, that certainly sounds like kill every single stinking one of them. Then the verse goes on to say, Then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry 
with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for you will then turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Well, there you have it. Uh, they're utterly destroying them and marrying them. That's an indication that the language is not meant to mean wipe out every single one of them. Uh, and then it's in, verse 5 says this, Thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars. You shall smash their sacred pillars, hew down their ashiram, and burn their graven images with fire. You shall wipe out their religion entirely. That sort of thing. Or you mentioned Joshua. In Joshua, we even have the same thing in a single verse. In Joshua 10, verse 20, uh, we read, It came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed, and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities. And, and so what we see is that frequently, particularly in ancient Semitic languages, words for destroy don't mean annihilate or kill, but rather ruin. And I'm not saying this is always the case. They do have a way to say kill, and sometimes they really mean it. Like in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul has the anointing taken away from him because he doesn't annihilate them entirely. So this, this particular line of reasoning that I'm using won't work with all passages, but with many of them. In fact, most of them. But uh, uh, let me say this. this. Genocide is not a good word to use for what we find in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, they're not being wiped out because they're of a particular race. Uh, the genocide is ethnic or racial cleansing. In the Old Testament, they're being punished for their immoral behavior and their resistance to the will of God, which has been announced to them. Their rebellion, okay? And the people who are the targets of, of God's wrath in the Old Testament are guilty of idolatry and clinging to it. They're guilty of adultery. They're guilty of burning their children uh, as in human sacrifice, that sort of thing. Uh, they're guilty of homosexuality and bestiality. And so in the more difficult passages, what we see, uh, passages that are not examples of hyperbole and warfare rhetoric, uh, there's a biblical pattern. Uh, Jonah would be an example of this. Uh, God declares that he will annihilate a group for extreme sin. Judgment is preceded by a warning or long periods of exposure to the truth in which they have time to repent. Any innocent adults are given a way to escape with their families, sometimes all of them. Okay, so uh, Rahab would be an example of, of not being uh, destroyed uh, when Jericho fell. Uh, Jonah is an example. Uh, someone is almost always saved or redeemed from the evil culture, and then and only then the judgment of God falls. 
And now someone might say, well, no, don't some biblical scholars think that Jonah is a non-historical book, that it's more of a parable? And, and some scholars do, and some conservative scholars think that, not for, not for reasons of unbelief, but for literary reasons. I happen to think it's a historical book. Um, but regardless, in, in chapter 4 of Jonah, Jonah's pouting because he has preached uh, judgment is coming upon the people of Nineveh, and the people of Nineveh have repented, and then God relented of the destruction he planned to bring on them, and that upsets Jonah because he hates the Ninevites, and he says, I knew that was what you would do. And, uh, and so the, the Old Testament is clear that God holds Israel to a similar but stricter standard of morality. And in fact, when his people rebel and fall into sin, he raises up other nations to conquer them and carry them away into exile. And, and so what we see is a consistently fair and moral standard in the Old Testament. And we see that God is far more interested in delivering people from judgment than in destroying people. That's a powerful way to wrap up this episode. And let me ask you this. So, Doc, I'm, I'm informed, you know, we, we shouldn't think of this as genocide. We see God in the Old Testament as consistent. He has a moral reason, not an ethnic reason. And he is trustworthy. He gives opportunity for repentance. Yeah, this is a complex question. And I would love to know where can I direct our church family. If somebody would like um, a, a layperson accessible next step to right. explore this, can you direct us a little bit? Sure. Uh, I, I would direct you in particular to the work of Paul Copan, uh, C-O-P-A-N. Uh, he has two very important books on this. Uh, one is, Did God Really Command Genocide? And he co-wrote that with a New Zealander named Matthew Flanagan. Uh, then Paul Copan's other book uh, is a best-selling book entitled, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God. Uh, another book uh, by Clay Jones, a uh, uh, professor at Biola, at Talbot um, uh, School of Theology. Um, and it's entitled, Why Does God Allow Evil? But a significant part of that book is on the Old Testament, uh, geno what we've called genocide passages. And then another book would be uh, a book that's an edited volume. Uh, Heath Thomas, who's the, now the president at Oklahoma Baptist. Jeremy Evans, who used to teach here used to teach at Southeastern Seminary and is now pastoring in Texas, and Paul Copan, edited entitled Holy War in the Bible, Christian Morality and an Old Testament Problem. And so in that book, they brought together Old Testament people, New Testament people, theologians, historians, and philosophers. And I actually wrote an article in that, in that book um, and it takes up this question again. So those are four good sources, and I'll email those to you. Well, thanks, and I'll, I'll share those with any church member that asks. Uh, I really appreciate your time, Doc. Thanks a lot, and I can't wait to hear the answer to tomorrow's question.